Yeah? Okay. Um, if you've got your Bible, turn to page 363, please, which is 2 Samuel and chapter 13. 2 Samuel and chapter 13. Now, what I'm going to try and do as I read is about 11 times in this passage, it talks about the sons of David. But the sons of David were the future of David's house, the future of David's family, the future of Israel. So I'm going to try and refer to them as that, um, so you get a flavor of what this passage is actually getting at. 2 Samuel chapter 13. After this, Absalom, the future of David's house, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the future of David's house, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister, Tamar, that he became sick, for she was a virgin. And it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. Now Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food. And prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I might eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom, that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon her brother in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I... Where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please ask for the king, to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than her, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. 
So she said to him, no, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, here, put this woman out, away from me, and bolt the door behind her. Now she had on a robe of many colors, for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel. And his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the future of David's house go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the future of David's house arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. And it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David saying, Absalom has killed all the future of David's house, and not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground. And all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all of the young men, the future of the, the, future of the house of David, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this had been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king take this thing to heart, to think that all of the future of his house are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Then Absalom fled. And the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked. And there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the future of David's house are coming. As your servant said, so it is. So it was. As soon as he'd finished speaking, that the future of David's house indeed came. They lifted up their voice and wept. Also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled. And went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geisha, 
And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geisha and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon, because he was dead. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, help us understand, help me deal with things sensitively, and build us up, we pray. Amen. In 2009, when I became pastor here, um, I told you it was my plan, amongst other things, that we were going to preach the whole storyline of the Old Testament um, before I retired or died, whatever came first. So we set off in Genesis, and here we are in 2 Samuel. Um, at this pace, I reckon I've got another six or seven years left. Um, we left off about a year ago, and we left it off as we, as we were looking uh, to Samuel, God's people want and need a king. But so far, it hasn't worked out because the king they've had, Saul, was a terrible king. David's been a good king so far. He was a king after God's own heart. For all of David's faults, he never, ever worshipped other gods. But David's life has recently fallen apart. He had an affair, didn't he? And he, he got a woman pregnant. And then David ordered her husband's death to, to cover things up. David had the power to do that because he was king. And eventually he repented. He, he truly repented. And in his mercy, God truly forgave him. It's an amazing thing that we can be forgiven anything if we repent. And here's the thing I want us to think about as we start. God's, God's forgiveness is complete forgiveness. If God forgives us something, we are completely and utterly forgiven. But there still might be consequences. Let me frame it like this. You've got a man on death row. He's on death row for murder. And while he's on death row, he reads the Bible and he learns about Jesus and he learns about his sin and he repents of his sin and he becomes a Christian. That man's going to enter heaven with Jesus. That, that man is now completely pure in God's sight. That man is justified. As we looked at this morning, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. So should he be let out of prison? Well, of course not, because even though he's completely forgiven, there's a consequence to his behavior. But he's still completely forgiven. Or think about it this way, somebody has an affair and, and they genuinely and truly repent, they're really sorry, and God completely and utterly forgives them. But the wife won't have them back. And the kids don't want anything to do with them. Does the fact that he's completely and utterly forgiven mean that his wife has to automatically take him back? No, but it doesn't mean he's not forgiven. Sometimes in his great mercy, God, God doesn't just remove the sin, he even removes the human consequences, but sometimes he lets them play out. David's completely and utterly forgiven, completely pure in God's sight, but we'll see from here onwards, he's not quite the same man. That's not down to God withholding his forgiveness. It's the consequence of David's actions catching up on him. Who's going to be the, the righteous, trustworthy king to lead God's people? Well, as we come to this chapter, we, we know it's not going to be David. That's what's looming over as we come to chapter 13. Chapter 13 is a terrible chapter, isn't it? 
It's not a brilliant story, but it is brilliantly written. That phrase, that son or sons, it's used 11 times. The phrase king's sons used eight times. These sons of David are the future of David's house. That's what we're supposed to hear when we read it. This, this is the future of David's house in this chapter. What does it look like? Well, Nathan's told David, Nathan's a prophet, and he told David, David, a consequence of your adultery and, your, and the murder and the cover-up is going to be that the sword will never depart from your house. David, your family's always going to have trouble. And so we meet the first two sons of David. We meet the future of David's house this evening, Amnon and Absalom. In fact, there are five people that we meet in this chapter. We're going to look at them all, then we're going to ask two questions. But let's look at Amnon. We're just going to try and work our way through the passage. I can't deal with everything. I'm just going to deal with what I think are the main things. Amnon is David's firstborn son. And so he's heir to the throne. Amnon is the future of David's house. When anything happens to David, Amnon's going to be king. Amnon's name means faithful, but he's anything but. Amnon's disgusting. With Amnon, we see sin at its worst. There's something shocking about what he does to his sister. There's something even darker than the normal sin there. Amnon is a pervert. But not only that, I think also Amnon shows us how sin behaves when we leave it unchecked. We read that Amnon loved his half-sister Tamar. Now Tamar was Absalom's full sister and Amnon's half-sister. So Tamar and Amnon shared the same father but different mums. That's another consequence of David's behaviour. But but we realise, don't we, that what Amnon feels, it's called love but it's not love. It's lust. We're told that he, he, he's lusting after his half-sister and he can't have her. He knows it's not right. We're told he lusted after because she was a virgin and he knew, verse 2 and 3, it was improper for him to act on it. He knows it, it, this cannot go anywhere. It's interesting in verse 3 how he calls her his brother's sister, not his own sister. She is Absalom's full sister, but, but I think Amnon's saying this. He's trying to distance himself, isn't he? Don't say my sister, it's my brother's sister. And Tamar would have been a virgin, but that's not, that's not what, just what the word meant when, it's, when she's called it here. It, it meant she was a woman who'd, who was single and, and eligible to be married, and she'd reached adulthood. She was in full bloom. She was of the age where they could seek a husband for it. If you were in London society 150 years ago, she'd be one of them young, posh young ladies that were being prepared for the season, you know, between uh, kind of spring and summer when the wealthy young ladies uh, attend balls and they're presented to society and, and they look to get them married off. And for a young woman like Tamar, it would have been an exciting time. She was still in her youth. She had all the doors open for her. She was beautiful. She had a really privileged life set out before her. Jonadab, we'll come to him in a minute, he notices that Amnon's off his food. He says, what's up with you? And Amnon tells him. And, and then he, he hatches a scheme to get Amnar on his own with Tamar. Amnon pretends to be sick and he says to his dad, David, can you, can you send Tamar to look after me? 
innocently Tamar goes to look after her brother. And as she approaches his bed with the food, he, he takes her by force and she pleads with him. But he, he ignores her and he, he rapes her. It's evil, it's disgusting, it's shocking. And perhaps what's even worse or what's, what's just as bad is after he's had a way with her, he doesn't want anything to do with her. Take her away, he says. And we're told that actually afterwards he hates her. She suffers the double indignity of being abused and then discarded. If you had to describe Amnon's behavior, he is a sexual predator. He's premeditated, he's grooming her in effect. He's perverted, she's his sister, he's violent, he takes her by force. And then he's dismissive, he doesn't want anything to do with her afterwards. And yet I want us to see something else about Amnon. That Amnon was David's son in more than one way. See, didn't David have a woman that was forbidden to him, brought to his bedroom? And David might not have been as rough or as cruel, but look, if dad takes what he wants. Matthew Henry writes that grace doesn't run in the blood, but corruption does. He's saying this, we can't pass grace, we can't pass salvation onto our kids. Our kids can't inherit grace from us, but we do pass on our fallen nature to them. And often, be it good or bad, sons turn out like the dads. In fact, we notice in Amnon and Absalom, one son's a sexual sinner like his dad, the other's a murderer like his dad. But I want us to see something else in in Amnon, we see the outworking of what we call original sin. And we see it through Amnon's desires, and we see it through his interaction with Jonadab. So let's look at Jonadab for a minute. Jonadab's name means the Lord gives, but his role is to encourage Amnon to take what the Lord hasn't given. Jonadab's horrible bloke, the creep. It is Amnon and Tamar's cousin but he facilitates Amnon's desires. If Jonadab had anything about him, he'd say, oh, that's too much, she's your sister. But Jonadab acts like Satan. We're told in verse 3, Jonadab was a very crafty man. He's wise, he's clever, but he's wicked. And he questions Amnon to tease out his desire, and he encourages him to take what's not his. It's just like that first sin, isn't it? There's Eve, and instead of looking at all the things that she was allowed, she lusts after the one thing she wasn't allowed. And Satan comes along, and he encourages her to take it. And just like Eve, once that Amnon tastes, something changes. Proverbs says, sin is tasty but it turns bitter when we've had our fill. Sin always leaves a bitter taste. In the garden, Eve took the fruit, expecting to gain all she'd ever wanted, but she ended up losing all she ever had. That's what sin does. Sin's bitter. It leaves a bitter taste. And, and Amnon's a vile creep. He treats his sister shockingly, both before, during, and after the event. And we think about us and we think, well, we might not be a sexual predator. 
But we always want what's forbidden, don't we? We share that with Amnon. That's what sin does. Sin, sin always wants what it can't have. Amnon wasn't thinking about all the young, eligible women in Israel. He wanted the one he couldn't have. David wasn't thinking about his own beautiful wife or even wives. David wanted the woman he wasn't allowed. Eve wasn't looking at all the, the blessings and the fruit and the trees of the garden. She looked at the one thing she wasn't allowed. You've got a massive field to play on as a kid. Which bit do you most want to play on? The bit that's roped up and off and says, keep off the grass. That patch of grass is far more exciting than all the others. And we can think we're not like Amnon because his sin's great and shocking, but sin always bites us. Once Amnon had what he wanted, it became bitter, and he hated Tamar with more hatred than the lust he'd had for her. And we can think we're not like Jonadab as well, but we can be. We can be watered-down versions of Jonadab. Jonadab could have the excuse, listen, I were only getting them together, I didn't know what he'd do to her. Jonadab didn't do the deed, but he knew what Amnon wanted, he facilitated it. He was probably angling for a future position. Remember, Amnon was going to be the next king. And we can say, well, I'm not like Jonadab, but, but Jonadab's the extreme example of someone who is prepared to tread on people's toes and turn a blind eye to wrong in order to get on themselves. We've all met Jonadabs in churches. When gifted people are not godly people, they become crafty people. So what about Tamar? We might look at this passage and we think about Absalom, we think about David, and we think about the, the whole flow of how it fits in with, with the rest of 2 Samuel. And it's, this is only, the only passage that Tamar's ever mentioned. But this passage is actually all about Tamar. You don't need to know what it means, but this, this passage is what's called a chiastic structure. And all it is, it's like a literary structure that's set up in a certain way that the, the first and last point match and the second, and second to last match. And the central, the central thing in this structure is always the main point. And the central part of, of 2 Samuel 13, the central part of the structure is a broken Tamar saying, where can I take my shame? That's the, that's the point of this passage. There's a victim who's scarred, and she says, where can I take my shame? Where can I get rid of my disgrace? That's the big question this passage is asking. Where can Tamar go to get rid of her disgrace? Your heart breaks for it, doesn't it, as we read it? It's so close to home in, in, in the world we live in. I've read, and I've heard, and I've listened firsthand to far too many accounts of people who've been abused and we look at them and we think poor poor Tamar this beautiful young woman she's got a whole life ahead of her she's trying to do something dutiful and kind she goes to a brother's house a place where it should be safe in a brother's house do you know that 80% of sexual crimes are committed by people the victim knows and trusts usually family she makes him food because he's ill and she's trying to care for him and he does such a wicked thing and we think, poor Tamar. 
She makes six attempts to, to plead and reason with him. But he's too strong for it. It's distressing, isn't it? You can feel the pain as she says in verse 13, where can I take my shame? Literally, how can I be rid of this disgrace? Sin always has a victim. Where's Tamar going to find comfort? Is there any comfort for someone who's endured what Tamar's endured? If your heart don't cry out for Tamar, there's something wrong with us. She goes away and she's wailing in sackcloth and ashes. She's absolutely broken. And Absalom finds her and, and, and he, he realizes what's happened and he takes her to his home. We think, how would we comfort her? We read that she remained in Absalom's house as a desolate woman. It's suggesting, I think, that she never recovered. She remained widowed. Well, not widowed, she remained single. And we don't hear anything more about her again. Poor, poor Tamar. And listen, it might not look in this passage, you might not feel like God cares for the Tamars of this world. But we need to know he does. When things like this happen, God sees, God knows, God cares, and God will deal with it. We'll come back to that in a bit. Tamar's a victim. She's trapped, ignored, raped, despised, banished, and ruined. I read in the news this week um, three women who've made allegations against a famous DJ, and all of them spoke, spoke, you could feel it as they were talking, all of them spoke of the horror of realizing they were in a situation where they had no control and they didn't feel able to fight back, and the guilt of not fighting back. And they said, we, we felt, afterwards we felt numb and, and, and complete shock. We think, poor, poor Tamar. The poor Tamars of this world. Absalom and David. We put these two together because the, the stories overlap. I think there's probably some or quite a lot of integrity in Absalom's behavior, but not all. Absalom's name means peacekeeper, but he wasn't a peacekeeper. When David learns what's happened, we're told he's very angry. And we think, our mentor that, David, you should be angry. But what does David do? Absolutely nothing. Maybe he felt too hypocritical. After all, what we see in this chapter is a case of the sins of the father being lived out through the sons. David might have thought, well, who am I to tell someone off for taking a woman they don't have a right to? Even later, we Absalom. David might think, well, who am I to judge someone who killed someone by luring him into a trap? And, and we know it is the thing. Everyone's responsible for their own sin, no matter what your background, what your upbringing, what your circumstances, when we stand before God, we're responsible for ourselves, but David's responsible. What we find is that after David learns of this rape, he's angry, but he doesn't do anything. Two years pass, and David doesn't do anything. When we ignore gross sin, either because it's out of love or awkwardness or because or we're afraid of the consequences, we minimize sin. By ignoring this sin, what David's saying to Tamar is, it's not that serious, Tamar, rape's not that serious, don't really matter. The Bible tells us love covers a multitude of sins. The Bible doesn't say love covers up sins. It should be common sense, shouldn't it? We pass over sins such as a, a silly remark or a personal affront or something that's, you know, a bit unwise, but not gross sin. 
not sexual sin, not criminal sin. And yet, as we, as we say this and we look back at David thousands of years ago, we look at churches today and it's still happening. One of the really big and really good evangelical organizations, massive evangelical organization in America, in the past few years, they've had massive scandal. They've had lawsuits against them because it, it was common practice when, when sexual abuse happened in their churches, as long as the person said they were repentant, they covered it up because that's what love does. There are actually some of these churches, the victims were placed under church discipline because they said, well, okay, fair enough, they've repented. It still needs to go further. And it were all done in the name of love. They're told to forgive and move on. I've heard sentiment like that with my own ears. It's offensive. If you're a Christian, do you know how damaging it is when, when you say about a victim of a sexual crime, you've just got to forgive and forget. You don't, you don't pursue this. It's saying what happened don't matter. In the evangelical wing of the Church of England, just the last year, there's been a huge scandal because there was some serious sexual abuse exposed from 20-odd years ago. And the real anger wasn't so much that the abuse happened. The real anger was that good men knew what had happened and didn't do anything about it. Some of the ministers, some of the people involved were moved on. Some of them were retired, you know, forced into early retirement, but it was covered up. David puts his family in his sentiment above justice. David was in charge of justice for Israel, but when it comes to his own family, his principles are gone. How often does that happen? And in the end, rightly or wrongly, Absalom does what David should have done. But in doing so, he's taking the law into his own hands. Absalom executes Amnon. And we can argue whether or not he's right, but if David had been doing what he should have been doing, Absalom wouldn't have had to do it. In fact, if David had fulfilled his role as king, I don't think Absalom had staged an uprising in a few chapters' time. Why did Absalom go on to hate David so much? I think a lot of it's to do with this. See, we can talk about love covering a multitude of sins, but when we don't deal with wrongdoing, we're opening the door for injustice, and the Lord hates injustice. Absalom's acting like a vigilante. And he's wrong, but you can kind of understand him. He's doing what David should have done. And so Absalom takes Tamar in, and then he bides his time. And two years pass. And you can imagine he's been stewing on it. And he devises a plan to get Amnon into the open. He invites, he invites David, first of all. I think he knows David wouldn't have been able to come with a whole household. And he says, well, how about just Amnon and my brothers then? And they go on this sheep shearing trip. It might not sound like fun, but it would have been a party atmosphere. The lads were out on their own. They're camping all as brothers. And he instructs his men. He says, look, once, once the Amnon's had a few to drink, I'm going to give you the nod. I want you to kill him. And they do. And Absalom kills Amnon. I think Absalom had two intentions here. I think he wanted to avenge his sister. But also, if he kills Amnon, he's next in line for the throne. 
and Absalom flees. It's the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of terrible hostilities between Absalom and David. David's brokenhearted. David's family's broken. He's lost two sons. We're told he wants to go to Absalom, but, but he doesn't. We thought, why not, David? Why don't you go to him? Because David's compromised. He's not the man he used to be. One son took what he wants allowed. Another son tricked someone and led him to the death. Like father, like son. And nobody comes out of this well. When serious sin gets covered up, the sense of injustice will lead to people overstepping their own authority to deal with it. And it leads to loss of reputation and it takes away the victim's credibility. And we look at this and we think, what a mess of a chapter. What on earth is happening? What a mess. I want to ask two questions and try and wrap things up. I'm not going to be able to wrap it up neatly because it's not a neat passage, but I'll, I'll do my best. First question we might ask when we read a passage like this is, where on earth is God? It seems like chaos. It seems like it's out of control. God, where are you in this? It's what the world says, isn't it, when things like this happen? When things like this happen in churches? Where's your God? What kind of God had let this happen? And it's right in one sense, God isn't mentioned in this passage. The Lord's not mentioned once in this passage. And in one sense, this is a godless passage. It's godless behavior, it's a godless passage. And when terrible things happen in this world, what do we say? We say, this is a godless world. But is it right to say that? Is it right to say that this is a godless world? Is it right to say that this is a godless passage? Where's God in this passage? Well, if you turn back to chapter 12 and verse 10, we'll see where God is in this passage. Because Nathan, from the Lord, says this to David. The sword will never depart from your house because of what you've done. Thus says the Lord, behold, I'll raise up adversity against you from your own house. That's where God is in this passage. It's, it's perhaps not the way we'd like to see him. God is in this passage fulfilling his purpose and his word to David. This passage shows us that God's faithful because he's doing what he said he'd do. He told David, there'll always be trouble in your house and he's keeping his word. That's not comfortable, is it? It's a comfort to know God keeps his word, but God keeps all his promises, good and bad. The godless world that we live in, it's not a godless world. It's playing out exactly how God wants it to. He's in control. God's in control of everything that's happening in the Ukraine. God's in control of everything that's happening in this church. God's in control of everything that's happening in your home. God's in control of all your past. But how does that help us deal with this whole area of evil? Yeah, you're in control, Lord, but, but how does that help a victim whose lives been overshadowed by what's happened to him? How does that help Tamar? How does it help Tamar to know that God's in control, but he's still allowed this to happen to her? Well, I want to close by looking at Tamar's question. Where can I take my shame? What hope is there for Tamar? I don't want to be flippant, 
I can't say how Tamar felt. Only someone who's gone through what happened to Tamar can say. This has never been my experience, but I can enter into some of it. Because we've all experienced hurt and shame and trauma of some kind, haven't we? And as we close, I want to do two things. I want us to see theologically how the scripture helps people like Tamar. And I want to see how that works out practically, how the church can help Tamar's. Because we, we, we've got to grasp there's massive scars and massive hurts, but there is grace after shame. People who've suffered what Tamar suffered, they do come back. They do rebuild their lives. They can go on to be happy. How does that happen? How can someone's life be turned around like that? We've met two sons of David tonight. One were a sexual sinner, the other were a murderer. There's no hope in those two sons of David, but we know where this is going, don't we? We know, actually, that there's another son of David. And as we come to 2 Samuel, we're, 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 the question we're being asked all the time as we work through the book is, is God's kingdom safe in anybody's hands? But there's another son of David. And Isaiah tells us about him. Isaiah says in, 60, in Isaiah 61 about this other son of David. He's been sent to heal the brokenhearted. He's been sent to comfort those who mourn. He's been sent to give us beauty for ashes. Remember Tamar, as she leaves, she puts the ashes on her head. It's the sign that she's desolate. Well, Jesus puts a crown on our head. And it might not be till we get to heaven, but it might be on earth that he, he brings beauty where there were ashes. He brings new life, new relationships, new joys when we thought we'd never experience them again. It goes on in Isaiah 61. He says, in place of your shame, you'll receive double honor. We think, how does, how does that happen? We know that Jesus died on the cross for us, don't we? We know that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, and we praise God for that. But how does Jesus' death on the cross for our sins help us when we've been sinned against? Well, it's because of this, that not only on the cross is Jesus bearing our sin, but on the cross Jesus bore our shame. He was the man of sorrows. He suffered massive injustice. And he was victorious over it. Isaiah 53 says he bore our griefs. Not just our sins, but our griefs. We're told by his stripes we're healed. Jesus doesn't just forgive, he heals. And it might, it might take time to experience, but it is a promise. Jesus heals people even who've had sexual sin committed against them. Hebrews 12 says, he bore our shame on the cross. Jesus didn't just take your sin on the cross, he took your shame. Jesus became a victim on the cross. He knows what it's like to be a victim. He knows what it's like to suffer shame, 
But Jesus wasn't just a victim on the cross. He was a victor at his resurrection. And because of Jesus, victims can be victors. You and me, and if we bring our, not just our sin to Jesus, if we bring our shame to Jesus, he'll bear our shame, he'll bear our reproach, he'll make us clean, he'll bring healing. And we might not feel it like that, but he heals us. As our victor, Jesus will bring justice, proper justice. We don't need to take it into our hands, because whether it's in this world or at the end, Jesus will bring justice, and that's satisfying. Nobody will get off with it. I was struggling to think how I could close this. But I remembered one thing I'd read a while ago, and then I found something else this week. Two brief accounts of how, how does this healing work in the lives of two women who have suffered the same as Tamar. How can we as a church help people who've suffered like Tamar suffered? Both of these accounts are recent. But the first one talks about a young woman and she'd been the victim of sexual abuse. And although she was a Christian, after this abuse, when she used to get a bath, she used to scrub herself with a scouring pad because she, she always felt dirty. She try, she said, I, just, I did it because I, I wanted to try and feel clean. And she used to mark herself with this scouring pad. And some friends from the church met with her and they talked with her and they wept with her and they spent time with her and they took her to the Psalms and, and they took her to the cross. And, and the story goes that eventually, not overnight, but eventually, she went and bought a cloth. And she said, I don't need a scouring pad now. Jesus makes me clean. And it, it was a beautiful, for, for the bloke who's telling the story, it was a, a beautiful thing for him to see that this healing might not have been overnight, but the process began. Because Jesus bore our shame, and he makes us clean. Another story is from an interview that I read with a, a woman who's recovering from sexual abuse. And she talks about the church, and I think this is a lovely, a lovely thing. We, we've got to be so sensitive, aren't we, that he talked, I read this week, one in six women... Will suffer from some form of sexual assault, whether it's attempted or carried out. We've got to understand, not just, not just women, men, that there are people that we come into contact with as a church that have suffered abuse that they shouldn't have ever suffered. We've got to be very careful that we don't belittle it. But at the same time, we've got to be careful that we don't allow it to define them. It's not the complete identity. And we, we need real help and wisdom. Don't ever say, oh, well, you've just got to forgive and forget. But this is what this, this woman said through the church. She says, I'm learning to trust people again. My church family are a bunch of sinners. But they try to love each other well and live for Jesus. They model family, which is something I've always craved for. They invite me to be part of their individual families. And I feel loved and cared for by them. The men in the church have taught me what men should be like. And what it actually looks like to care for and lead your family. I'm thankful for them. The men in the church have helped change my perception of men without even knowing it. And that's a lovely, 
testimony. I, I, I was, as a church, we can get alongside people, whatever it is, and show them that there's, there's hope in Jesus, there's life in Jesus. Let me pray. Father, last week we saw how there's grace for people who commit sexual sin. And this week we see that there's grace for people who are victims. Father, we don't want to trivialize it and make it that we can wave a gospel wand and all of a sudden all the hurt goes away. We know that's not the case, whether it be sexual sin or other sin. But we do thank you that Jesus' life and death can deal with both our sin and our shame. Father, we, we don't like reading passages like this, but we thank you that the Bible doesn't shirk away from them. We thank you that you're not, you're, you're holy, but you're not so, so set apart that you won't get involved and get your hands dirty dealing with the mess of this world. We thank you that through Jesus, victims can become victors because he became a victim for us and rose victorious. Father, give grace to people who are struggling. Father, give wisdom to us to, to be sensitive instruments in your hand to help people. We thank you that your sovereign will is both just and it's loving. We thank you most of all that you are a God who redeems and we thank you that there's testimonies, I'm sure even amongst us, not only testimonies of bad things that have happened, but testimonies of how Jesus has redeemed people and situations. Lord, we thank you for this, and it's the best way we can wrap it up, just to, to leave it with you. Thanking you that you're a redeeming God who makes us clean. Amen. We're going to sing once more to close. Um, I'm not sure what it is, but we'll rise with the music and sing together. Great is the gospel.